0: Well hey Grumlaw, thank you so much uh, for inviting me today. It's so good to be with you. Um, I love being with you um, in your community. You have always been so welcoming and so loving. So thank you once again for inviting me. This is a little different, of course, than what it usually is, but we've been doing this for a little while. So thanks for inviting me into your community. Actually, thank you for inviting me into your home, into your living room, into your family room, into your kitchen, into your bathroom, wherever you are. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm so glad to be here with you uh, today. And I'm, I'm really excited uh, about this series called Campfire Stories. And the reason why I'm so excited about it is because this is one of my favorite topics. I love talking about Jesus' stories, the stories that Jesus would tell. You know, Jesus was this master storyteller. He loved to tell stories. And not only that, he was prolific at it. He, he, there's so many stories in Scripture. Matter of fact, in the book of Luke, uh, the book, the Bible, or the book that we're going to be looking at today, uh, he told over 24 stories because he believed that the best way, the, the most effective way, to reach into our hearts and train and transform our lives forever was through the power of stories. And it wasn't just any stories, right? We've been learning that it's these parables. These parables. What is a parable? We, is parables a story that reflects our own heart? that reveals the condition of our heart. And that is a hard thing. It is a hard thing to look at our hearts. It's a hard thing to look at a broken heart of ours and say, okay, what needs to be healed? That's a challenging thing to do. But those that are willing to ask those questions of our hearts and willing to get the real answers, the sincere answers, those are the ones that we are gonna really see what God wants for our lives and we're gonna be healed. And so we have to be willing to really be challenged. And when I think about Jesus and I think about all the challenging things Jesus says, whether it's parables or any other kind of teachings. It's this insistence on by Jesus that we are called to love those that are the hardest to love. Right? Like isn't that the hardest? Like we're we're not just supposed to love people. We're not just supposed to love people that love us. We're supposed to love those that are hardest to love. And Jesus gives us no out on that. Like we don't we don't have an option. Like if you're so if if you're not a follower of Jesus or you don't call yourself a Christian, yeah, you do. You have an option. You can decide who you get to love and who you don't have to love. But for Jesus, he gives us no option. Matter of fact, he says, look, it's easy to love those who love you. That's easy. What well, the hard thing is to love those who don't love you, but that's what I'm calling you to do. And so no matter so no matter how many times you go to church, or how many times you pray, or how many times you you know you sing these worship songs, or how many, how many Bible passages, it means nothing to Jesus unless, of course, you are learning to love those who are the hardest to love. And I'm guessing when I'm saying that, somebody in your life is popping in your mind right now. Somebody is so hard to love, somebody who is difficult, somebody that makes it so hard for you to love them, you know, and I don't know who that might be. Maybe that's somebody in your family, or maybe that's somebody that used to be in your family that's not in your family anymore. Maybe it's a boss or a coworker, somebody at school, maybe it's somebody at your work, right? Or or maybe it's somebody at your church, or your life group, or your small group, or your Bible study. There's always somebody in our lives that seems so difficult to love. One of my friends says, it's like like trying to hug a porcupine, right? That's an amazing analogy. It's so right on, and for just so many different kinds of reasons. And my guess is though, you've tried to love them, haven't you? You've tried, you've given it a shot. You know that Jesus, that's what Jesus asked for you to do, and so you did it. And maybe for you it didn't turn out well. Maybe for you it didn't live up to that expectation. Maybe for you it backfired, but you tried. And you're like, why would I put myself through that again? And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna take us to a parable today which will open our eyes a little bit more on how we can love those that are the hardest to love in our lives. Because we all got somebody. You got somebody in your mind right now. And I wanna take you to a passage, a story, in which I would say that most of us, if not all of us, or at least somewhat familiar with. It's a very familiar story. Even if you've never opened your Bible before, even if you've never gone to church, even if you've never had any kind of a spiritual background, you are familiar somewhat with this story that we're gonna be talking about today. And it's called the Good Samaritan. And so uh, before we dive right into this, uh, I wanna pray for us if we could, okay? Father, thank you uh, for this time. Uh, Thank you. I thank you for Grum Law Church and everything they have meant uh, to so many people, including myself. Uh, God, I thank you for allowing us to uh, hear from you today, uh, to listen, uh, to hear your words of wisdom and guidance and assurance. God, we know that you're going to challenge us today. Will we be open to that? Father, will you open our minds so that we can understand what you have to say? Will you open our hearts so that we can feel it? Will you open our ears so we can hear that still small whisper of your voice? And Father, will you open up our eyes to see things differently? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. So what do you say we dive right into this? All right, we're going to be going to the book of Luke in the Bible. The, the Luke is in the New Testament. It's the uh, it's the third book in what's called the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? The Gospels are just the accounts of Jesus' life, and we're going to go to Luke uh, ten, starting with verse. 25 now listen if everything I just said right there everything I just said, you know Luke and Gospels and New Testament and Chapter and verse and all that kind of stuff if that was just like gobbledygook to, that meant nothing I might as well speak it in a different language Don't worry about it because we're gonna put the words up on the screen All right, so you can be able to follow along so you're fine whether you got a Bible You don't got a Bible don't worry about it. You're gonna be okay So let's just dive in this is gonna be like one of those old-fashioned good old-fashioned old-school Uh, Bible studies, because we're just gonna go from one verse to the next. Okay, so you ready? All right, here we go. It says this. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. All right, let's stop right here. An expert of the law. What what are we talking about here? Well, the law in Jesus' day was the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes it was called the Law of Moses, other times it was called the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This was the law of the land. This is what the Jewish people followed. It was God's law. Law, rules, regulations. There was no separation of church and state. Everything was God's law. So this is, this is the law that they're talking about. And the guy that comes up to meet Jesus is an expert in it. He's an expert in the law. Now, not only would he have known the first five books of the Bible Um, you know, backwards and forwards like the back of his hand. But an expert in law would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Memorized. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to flip. Just kind of, if you have a Bible with you, flip a little bit through the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And imagine what it would have taken to memorize all that, right? This is an expert in the law. So this guy is not new to the game. He's not a novice. He's not trying to, you know, put his feet in the water of religion. I wonder what God's all about. No, 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 no. He is part of the religious elite. He's a part of the religious academia of the time. This is the guy that would have known all, everything about the Bible. He's the one you would have won on your Bible trivia team. You know what I'm saying? If there was such a thing. He would want you, you would want him to be a part of this because he was so smart. This is the guy that comes up to greet Jesus and he asks Jesus a question. So he says, actually, right before that, uh, Luke gives, um, gives a word. A word to tell us um, why this man is coming up uh, to ask a question of Jesus can can anyone shout out from where you are the word that Luke uses uh, to give us the reason why the man is coming to see Jesus? yes very good to test to test yeah this guy isn't here to you know ask Jesus a really, you know, sincere question. He's not there to listen. He's not there to understand. He's not there to question and to challenge his own preconceived understanding. He's not there to humbly, you know, sit at the feet of the rabbi. No, he's there to test. He's already come to his own conclusions, right? He's already made up his own mind. He is there to test. He has an agenda. So this is basically Luke, the writer here, saying, look, it's going to sound like he's really sincere. It's going to sound like he's coming up and he's just humbling himself before Jesus. But you have to understand, there is an agenda with this guy. Now listen, before we throw this guy into the pile of the bad guys, I want to ask you a question. Have you, ever, have you ever gone to Jesus with an agenda? Right? Have you ever gone to Jesus where you've already made up your mind? Have you ever gone to Jesus where you've already come up with your own conclusions? And you simply want Jesus to agree with you. You're coming to Jesus because you want Him. To, you're not coming to Jesus because you want to listen and you want to understand and you want to humble yourself at the feet of. No, 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 no. You want to tell Jesus what you feel and how you want Jesus to deal with the situation, right? I think for so many of us, we go to Jesus with an agenda, instead of really going Jesus to listen, right? And listen, there's nothing wrong with going Jesus with anything. We're supposed, even our agendas, we're supposed to go to Him. But I have found in my life that those breakthrough moments, and you probably have too, that those breakthrough moments in my life, whether that's spiritually, relationally, whatever it might be, are those times when I've laid aside my own agenda and I said, God, I want to hear from you. I sincerely want to know what you think, right? So this man is coming to Jesus with an agenda and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we hear eternal life, what do we hear? We hear afterlife. But in Jesus' day, eternal life wasn't just afterlife. It was something that happened right now. In Jesus' day, it wasn't about waiting till you get to heaven to receive eternal life. It was about how do I experience heaven right now? How do I he- experience the joy, the peace, the hope, the love of heaven right now? How Not how do I get to heaven, but how do I bring heaven to earth? How do I experience that right now? How does it start now? So this guy comes in, he says, how do I experience heaven right now? Albeit, he has an agenda, but that's the question he's asking. And then Jesus answered him by saying this, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus is saying, okay, so what's written? You're an expert in the law. What is written in the law? And how do you read it? How do you interpret it? Because the Bible has to be interpreted, and we're going to be seeing that in a second. And he answered this, he said, he said to Jesus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, well, how do, you, how do you think you get eternal life? He said, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And listen, this is, like, this is a really good answer. This is a wonderful answer this guy gives. And you know how we know this is a wonderful answer? It's because Jesus has already said it. He's already said it. He's already said this. Like, not long before this, Jesus has already said these exact words. Somebody comes up to Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? In all the Bible, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, all of the scripture, it's based on these two commandments. And this guy is just saying what Jesus said has said, which really brings us to a question, doesn't it? Why is this guy asking a question of Jesus that he already knows the answer to, right? Like, why is Jesus asking this question which he already knows how Jesus would respond? Because the way that Jesus would respond, he's probably, Jesus has probably been saying this a lot, this is probably a theme of Jesus, and this man would know that. Why is he asking Jesus a question in which he already knows the answer. He already knows how Jesus is going to respond. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's just really weird. It's really, really strange. And then Jesus answers him and he said, well, you have answered correctly. It's like, yeah, good job. It's what I've been saying for a long time. He says, do this and you will live. And this is where it's supposed to end. The story's supposed to end right here. It's done, really. I mean, this would be a good place to end, and he would smile, and he would walk away, and Jesus would turn away, and he would go and do some miracles or more teaching. But it doesn't. And it says here, Luke says, but he wanted, meaning the expert in law, he wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Oh, do you see what's happening here? Do you see? You see what's going on here? This, this is a this is a trap, right? This is a this is like a sabotage. This all for all my Beastie Boy fans. Listen, all y'all, this is a sabotage. He has led Jesus. He thinks he's led Jesus into a corner. This is the reason why he asked Jesus a question here, and you know Jesus is going to answer. He already knew how Jesus was gonna answer this story. He already knew how Jesus was gonna answer this question. It's because he wanted to get Jesus to get to this point and who is my neighbor? Now the, the reason why he, he asked this question is because there's a big debate going on in Jesus' day and the question is who was our neighbor? Because in the Old Testament, in the law that this guy's an expert of, in the Old Testament law, God said this. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the thing. God never gave any specifics on who your neighbor is. He simply said, love your neighbor as yourself. But he didn't say who your neighbor was. So this neighbor had to be interpreted because the Bible has to be interpreted. And so people from all over and all different backgrounds and all different, you know, kind of uh, religious backgrounds and, and academic, they would begin to say, okay, so who is my neighbor? And they began to put people in categories, like this is my neighbor, this is not my neighbor. right? Some people would say, well, my neighbor is, yeah, my next door neighbor. Some people would say, well, my neighbor is the, the person that's uh, the person in my family, or the person in my religious group, or my faith community, or that person that is my country, or my tribe. Right, whatever that is, whatever it might be, like that's the person that I'm supposed to love, like I love myself, and there are people that I don't have to, like this is the bucket that I have to love, and these are the people that I don't have to love the way that I love myself. And it was put into categories, and this, uh, this guy says, or the, Luke says, this guy came to justify himself. So, so it suggests that this guy already had a bucket. He already had a category. Like he had a group of people that he was supposed to love with everything that he had, that he loved himself. And there were people that he didn't have to. I mean, he could if he wanted to, but there were people he didn't have to love the way that he loved himself because these are the people that were his neighbors. And he probably had really good reasons for it, really good justification for it. He could probably back it up with scripture. And I'm guessing it's the same for you. I'm guessing it's the same for you. If there are people in your life you know you're supposed to love, but they're just so difficult to love and you've justified it. You've given reasons for it, excuses for it, and they're really good ones. And maybe you even backed it up with scripture. And so this guy says to Jesus, all right, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And this guy thinks he's backed Jesus into a corner. And Jesus then tells this story, this parable, and he says this. In reply, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead. So this guy's going from one town to another and all of a sudden out of nowhere comes these robbers, these thieves, these guys and they beat him up and they take everything they have and they leave him on the side of the road and leave him for dead. And then Jesus says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now we're familiar with a priest, right? I mean, you get a priest in your mind, you know what a priest is, he's high up on the religious scale. But we're not familiar with a, a, a Levite. A Levite was like a teacher, a manager of the temple, the temple of God right? That was like the highest place that you could be. This is where God essentially lived. That's where he resided. And and a Levite was was there to teach and to manage. And and this is a place where people would come. This is a place where people would worship. It's a place where people would meditate and pray and sacrifices and offerings. So like both of these guys, this Levite and this priest, very high up on the leadership scale of religion. And both of them, both of them see this guy on the side of the road, this guy that's bleeding and this dying, and they cross over to the other side, and they keep moving on. Now, of course, these are the bad guys, right? These are the bad guys of the story, right? These are the guys that not only you know, could have helped, but these are the ones that should have helped. They were the ones that were supposed to help, right? If anybody that were supposed to help this guy, they were the ones, but they just didn't care. They got better things to do. They just passed on by, right? They had better things to do, right? Wrong. Wrong. In, in Jewish times, in, in, in biblical times, in the days of Jesus, in the law of Jesus, it said that if a Levite or a priest touched the body of a, a dead person or a bleeding person, that it meant that they were ceremonially unclean. Say that one time, They were ceremonially unclean, which meant they were no longer, for a period of time, able to help other people in their community. To just touch this man, to help this man who is bleeding or dying, meant that they would have to sacrifice so much of what they did and helping so many other people that would need them for a long period of time. You see what Jesus is doing here? Already in this story, Jesus is saying, this is not black and white. Right, this isn't, this isn't cut and dry. Like there's, there's complexities here. Isn't that true? There's complexities in all of our lives and we need to see that. We need to look under, Jesus is already forcing us to look underneath the surface of the story, to see it deeper than what we would normally see it, to see it beyond what meets the eye. And then Jesus says, so we've talked about the Levite. We've talked about the Samaritan. I mean, we've talked about the, the priest. And then Jesus said, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. Now, it's impossible for me to adequately express to you the hatred that the Jewish people had for Samaritans. Impossible. Like, the hatred was so deep. The animosity was so deep. It was a, a family uh, hatred it was uh, it was from family from family from generation to generation it was ingrained into the very core of who they were like there was nothing good about a samaritan nothing right and so you know this story is often called the good samaritan to a Jew, that, to a jewish person that would have been the most preposterous statement ever that would have been like an oxymoron at the highest degree there was nothing nothing good about a Samaritan, and Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan, and he said, but a Samaritan, as he traveled there, came to the man, and where he was, and he saw him, and he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper and he said look after him and when I return I will reimburse you for any expense you may have had. Jesus is just like pouring on the compassion here. He's like pouring on the empathy. It's like this this Samaritan is just giving and giving and giving and sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing. It's so that nobody in the crowd could be, well, that Samaritan, he just did it for himself. No, no, there's no way he could have done it for himself. And can you imagine, can you imagine the silence that was in the crowd, like this was the last person that they would ever expect to help somebody on the side of the road because there was nothing good about a Samaritan. You ever been been in a situation like, you ever been in a situation when you really needed help, where you were in a tight spot and the last person that you expected that was going to help you, helped you? Like the last person you expected was gonna be there, was there? Uh, I've been in that situation many times. Matter of fact, I can remember a time that we were, we were moving and transferring things and I asked a lot of people to be there and the person that showed up was the person that I least expected. And you know what it forced me to do? It forced me to look at that person a very different way. It forced me to look deeper than where I had looked before, to look uh, deeper into there's something good about this person. And from that moment, and I saw this person in a very different light. And this is what they're going through, they're, this is the last person that they expected And like I said, you can imagine the silence of this crowd, and especially imagine the silence of this uh, expert in the law that thought he had Jesus cornered. And so Jesus asks this question. He says to the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands? Of robbers so which one of these three do you think is the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of robbers now Jesus isn't asking a trick question here it's not a trick question it's easy Jesus is not trying to be cute mm he's not trying to you know going from a different angle no no no, no. Who, who's the neighbor here if I was to ask you that question I'm, I'm asking you right now if I was to say of all these of these three people that came across this man which one was the neighbor to the man that was beaten? what would be your answer yeah yeah, exactly. The Samaritan. Of course that's your answer. Yeah. Well, let's see this man's answer. The man answered. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. Do you see what's happening here? This man can't even say the name. He can't even say the name Samaritan. Only the one. The animosity is so deep. The hatred is so deep. It is so ingrained that he can't even say the name. You know why? Because names have power names have power all of a sudden it doesn't become a category in which you can kind of toss aside names have power names remind us that the person is a human being created in the image of god with immeasurable value and worth no matter who they are that's what a name does and this person can't even say the name you ever known somebody who refers to their former spouse as just the ex? yeah because names have power You ever known somebody, maybe you mentioned the name, say, please don't mention that name in my house. It's because names have power. All of a sudden, when you name a name, it's not just somebody that you can toss aside into a category. It becomes a person, a living human being with immeasurable value and worth to God. And we realize that because names have power, doesn't it? You know that person, when you mention that name in your presence, it just brings up a sense of anxiety, Maybe your blood begins to boil, maybe you just be, maybe there's something inside you that clenches. Well, guess what, that's the one that Jesus wants you to love, like yourself. If, you've, if you were wondering at the beginning, I didn't have anybody in my mind that I was thinking of that you know it was hard really to love, they make it hard to love, the one that you're thinking of right now, that's the one that Jesus calls you to love, the way that you love yourself. And that can be tough and that can be challenging. He couldn't even say the name. And Jesus says, go, go and do likewise. Go and be like this man. And here's the thing is that um, we want to love those that are hardest to love. And we know in the story, it tells us that we're supposed to do that. But sometimes it's difficult to know how And I think in this story Jesus gives us a clue. I think Jesus gives us kind of a push in the right direction. And it's the word that he uses when he talks about the Levite and when he talks about the the priest and when he talks about the Samaritan when they saw the man. The word saw. The word for saw that Jesus uses in the Greek is the word horao. Everybody uh, on that side of the camera, I want you to say horao. Yeah, really good, really good. Now, hara'o can mean, has a couple different meanings. It can mean to see or to see with your eyes, you know, the normal way that we see. And uh, and this is the way that the priest saw the man on the side of the road. This is the way that the Levite saw the man on the side of the road. But there's another way of seeing. Hara'o also means, and it's used as much throughout scripture, is to see, not with your eyes, but to see with your heart to see deeper, to see deeper than when your eyes can see. We need to see those that are the most difficult to love with new eyes, with the lens of Christ. This is the kind of uh, eyes that God has for you, the kind of eyes that God has for me. In 1 Samuel, it says that man sees the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's the eyes that see with our heart into someone else's heart. You see, if we're ever going to love people, we have to have new eyes. We have to ask God to see with new eyes. Not to see with our eyes, but to actually see deeper with our hearts into someone else's heart. We need to see the good in other people. We need to see the good. And you may say, well, you know what, the person I'm thinking, there is no good, just like this guy said about the Samaritan. There is no good but that is not true, that is not true. No matter what, no matter matter what, no matter who it is, there's always something good, something good underneath. And yeah, you know what, maybe it's piled on by life and situations and sin and junk and everything is piled up, but underneath all of it, there is some good to find. We can't give grace unless we find the good. And the reason I can say there is good, because in the very beginning of the Bible, when God created the human race, he called everything good. Matter of fact, he called the human race, he called human beings very good. And he never took that goodness away. Inside of every single one of us, there is something good to hold on to. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to pray for somebody that was very difficult to love, somebody that you couldn't find any good in, but you still tried to pray for them? How long did that go for? I'm guessing not long at all. I'm guessing it stopped very, very quickly. Because we have to find some good in people in order for us to show Grace, we need to find the good in others, no matter what it is. See, when we find the good, when we search for the good and we find it, all of a sudden our hearts begin to change and we begin to love people the way that Jesus loved people, the way we're called to love others like ourselves. And it's really, really hard. It really is hard sometimes and I'm not saying it, won't, it will always turn out the way that you think it's gonna turn out. But Jesus never said, love other people if it meets your expectations. Love other people, you know, as long as it doesn't come back to haunt you. No, 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 no. Love them no matter what. And you will be amazed on heart, their hearts begin to change as well. I'm, uh, I'm thinking of a story that happened years ago um, where, where God taught me this. Um, years ago, I was a, still am, but I always do a lot more professional acting. I remember uh, we were doing a show, and it was a really, really good show. And there was this, um, there was the stage manager of this show that, for some reason, uh, she had it out for me. She didn't like me, and I had no idea why. The um, stage manager is somebody who is who takes over the show after the director leaves. So the director's there, the director has everything going fine, and then the stage manager comes in and makes sure everything runs smoothly. Well, this stage manager really really did not like me for some reason. I have no idea what it was. And every time I would come off off stage, every single show, she would go directly to me and tell me all the things that I did wrong, all the mess ups, all the lines that I missed, all of it, as if I didn't know. She would continually come up to me. Matter of fact, it wasn't just me. People would come to me and say like, what did you do to her? I'm like, I have no idea. She just doesn't like me. I don't know what it is. She was just so hard to love. I remember um, at the end of one of the shows, I, there was a, a lighting cue that was off and that was her fault, right? And I'm thinking, halfway through the show, I'm thinking, oh man, when, I, when, when, when this is done, when we get done with this show and I get off the stage, I know she's gonna be waiting for me, so I'm gonna have something to get back at her. I'm gonna say something, you know, and this is, this is a real, this is a doozy. It's a really, really good one. And so I'm thinking about that and we bow and we go off the stage and I'm just about to go off and she's not there, right? She's not there where she usually is waiting for me. And so I kind of move into the dressing room and of course there she is kind of following me. And right before I'm about to move into the dressing room and I'm about to turn around and say something, I heard God speak to my heart. I really do. I really felt God say to my heart, say, Scott, find the good. Find the good. And I remember in these split seconds, I thought to myself, but God, I have a doozy. Like, this is the day for me to come back with something. And I hear it again. Scott, find the good. So, um, sure enough, she comes right to me and I say, hey, be, before you give me a note, and I'm ready for it, I got my pad and paper and everything. Before you give I just want to say something. Um, I just want to tell you how good I just wanna tell you how good you are at what you do. I said, I could never do what you do. I could never keep all of this running. I could never keep this show running and all of these actors and the lights and the sound and get everybody to, I could never do what you do the way that you do it. And I just wanted to tell you that, and I truly meant it. I wanna tell you that you do such a fabulous job at this. So just thank you for that. And I remember, because we're in the dressing room now, and there's like silence. Everybody wondering what was going to happen next. And then I I get out my pad of paper, and I I said, okay, sorry, what what did you want to say? And I wasn't being facetious, or I wasn't being sarcastic. I literally wasn't. This is just what God asked me to do. And she looks at me, she says, oh yeah, um, yeah, nothing. We can talk about it later. And I said, okay, and she walked out. And I remember um, I was the last one because it always took me a while to get everything off and get the makeup off and get everything. I remember I was the last one out of the theater. And as I'm about to walk out of the theater, of course, I heard the voice behind me. And she said, Scott. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, now she remembered. She remembered that thing that she was going to tell me. And right before I was about to leave, I turn around and I'm like, yeah. She says, uh, hey, you you know that, uh, that scene um, in the second act where you, you, know, you talk to what's the name and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I just want to tell you, I thought that was really good tonight. And I said, thanks. And I turned and walked out. And I'm going to tell you, our relationship wasn't perfect, but from that moment on, everything changed. It's because of one moment of finding the good. Now, I'm not saying that because I want, hey, look, Scott Crownover, he found the good. I didn't want to. It's the last thing I wanted to do. She was like a porcupine trying to hug. There's no way it was gonna happen until I found the good. There is good in everyone. And when you find the good in someone, things change. Things will change. There's good in everyone, but we have to have new eyes. So my encouragement to you today, today for this week and for the the year and hopefully your entire life is to look at people with new eyes because when you, you, you do, you'll find the good. God sees the good in you. Let's find the good in others so we can live out the calling of Jesus in our lives.